This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11, and we saw in chapter 10 the situation with King Hanan and the Ammonites. It sounds like a band, but uh, they were, <laughs> it was actually people back then. Uh, tonight we're going to look at the sin that changes the course of David, King David's personal life and the Davidic dynasty. Now I just would ask that we wouldn't get so hung up on the sin, because sin is sin to God. And we tend to look at some sins as grievous sins, and others is not so bad that God, you know, and that I think breeds self-righteousness. So let's not look at the fact that, you know, even people who don't know a lot about the Bible know about what David did with the adultery and the murder, but let's put, look past the sin and look at the anatomy of sin in general and the path that it leads us down. So we're going to turn, before we get into this, in James 1, two verses, 14 and 15, James 1, 14 and 15. And this is kind of neat because James gives us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this progression of sin. Um, and and I'll, I'll talk briefly about that as well. It says in verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when sin has conceived, it gives, when desire has conceived, excuse me, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You know, I'm pretty analytical in my thinking as I look at this, I can almost envision this connection, this nexus. We're fallen beings. We have different temptations. We succumb to different things as individuals. And then there's a temptation that's put in front of us. And there's certain this nexus where uh, the temptation matches this sin that we have, and we give into it, and then there's this connection. I think about lightning. You know, there's charged particles in the atmosphere, and, and the Earth's surface is charged as well. And if you've ever seen a picture of lightning when it strikes, there's leaders that come up from the ground, and they're very faint. And then the lightning comes and attaches to it, and it makes that connection, and it comes down with an incredible, for, incredible ferocity. So we, we kind of put out these leaders at times where we have these propensities to certain sins, and then that temptation is there, and when they connect, boom, it's explosive. It's just the way I think. <laughs> um, one more quick scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know, we've all fallen into sin. We've all been tempted and done things that we shouldn't have done. And we can't blame God. We can't blame anyone but ourselves. Because in verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, be careful when you read that. Uh, it doesn't mean that God gave, gives the temptation and then he gives the way out. He doesn't do that. James is very clear in verse, I believe it's 13, uh, what we just read. One verse before, let no one say that I am tempted uh, by God, because God doesn't tempt us to sin. There are other things that tempt us, but God, with that temptation that comes from an evil source, he gives us a way out so that we can escape it. Uh, it's, so just going to make sure we understand that. So let's look at David's story here. Uh, and starting with verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So this sets the stage, and it does appear to be, uh, for lack of a better term, an exploded view sort of like you get in auto mechanics, you get this exploded view of the events that took place in chapter 10. So this is a little bit of a microcosmic view 
of what we saw with this constant drawn-out war with the, with the uh, Ammonites. So this is what's going on. Kings normally go out to battle, but things were going well for David. He was winning a lot of wars. You know, he was taking a lot of land, and uh, he stayed home in Jerusalem. Now, this led to maybe idleness. Uh, it gave way to some things, and um, this, it happens. Uh, major sin sometimes is often as a result of either idleness or maybe things going too well. That's why struggle is good. You know, we hate struggle. We hate trials. We hate going through this stuff. But I'll tell you what, I've never been so close to the Lord as when just there's just immense pressure in, in my life looking back. Uh, we're so close to Him. We cry out to Him, right? And then sometimes when there's too much success, we kind of, oh, I'm good, God. We kind of, you know, we kind of move away from Him, and it just is a slow fade, as we'll see later on. I think about the life of the Reverend Jim Baker, PTL Ministries. He was doing very well for a long time, very Bible-based. And it wasn't until he reached the apex of success that his morality starts to, start to decline and event, eventually ended up in jail. Uh, so this is, it's kind of sad to look at. So let's uh, move forward in verse 2. It says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So this is another step in the anatomy and progression of sin. He sees Bathsheba. She's bathing. The Bible tells us that she's beautiful. But David didn't have to go any further. So this is the first step in his sin. He sinned with his eyes. And again, he could have stopped at this point. Any of us could stop at that point. Um, and furthermore, David had plenty of wives at this time. You know, what was the issue with this one other woman? I'm sure his other wives were beautiful, but, um, you know, that just makes things worse in a sense. Uh, verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So this unknown person, the Bible doesn't tell us who it is, basically says, uh, King, she already has a husband. Oh, and by the way, she's married to Uriah. Uriah was one of his fiercest warriors, a loyal man, right? Uh, a faithful man, no less. And you kind of got to give that person credit, whoever this unknown person was, to say these things. And I have a question for all of us here. Have we ever been that person? You know, we... we to somebody close to us, maybe even in authority, and they're just going down the wrong path. And we subtly let them know, you know, that's probably not a good idea. And then the question is, do we have those in our life who can do the same? Very important, because sin's deceiving, it's deceptive. And we need those type of people in our lives to gently and cautiously let us know what's, what's going on here. The second step is that David dwelled on the sin. First step, with his eyes. The second step, he's dwelling. He's asking questions now. He's digging deeper into this, this woman, uh, wants to know more about her. And this is what James 1 tells us about this, uh, this conception. Now, I looked in the, in, in the Greek lexicon, and that word can mean also to seize or to arrest. Right? Our temptations can become a bear in our lives. Right? Sin can become a bear, and it can arrest us. And we willingly put out our hands to be handcuffed. And then we're taken down the road to slaughter. So it's, it's a very sobering look 
um, at, at sin in general. Something certainly we should take home tonight. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. So the third step is now David sins with his actions. It's getting progressively worse here. He commits adultery. I find it interesting that the author put that she was cleansed from her impurity. Now this is according to the law in the Torah, in Leviticus 15, after her menstrual cycle, there would be a ceremonial cleansing uh, before intercourse, and that's what they're speaking about. But I find the irony here is that this little law about the purification was important to the two of them, but they forgot about the fact that there was adultery being committed. You know? Hey, let's got to make sure you, you, you have you bathe. Are we okay to, to, to do this thing? We're committing adultery, right? And it gets worse. And this is the deception of sin. It deludes us. It deludes us. Now, maybe none of us in this room have done this particular thing coupled with murder, but how many times do we justify our sin? How many times do we play around with our sin and try to you know, work the law and do legal loopholes to get around that sin that we're committing? How many times have we failed in an area but overcompensated with God's word in another area like they're doing? How many times have we winked at our own sin eh, but then we've self-righteously looked and been critical about somebody else's sin? Questions we should definitely ask. See, this road to self-deception is subtle, but it eventually puts us off course. You know, you can be taking a trip anywhere on a plane, and uh, you could be one degree off from your flight pattern. And by the time the plane has traveled a thousand miles, it's way off course. That city doesn't even exist in your, in your field of view anymore. And this is what sin does. And we can fool ourselves. I've been there. You've been Christian long enough. You've been living long enough. We've fooled ourselves at times. And then we've paid the price for it. Now, I don't hear a lot of pastors speaking about this, but I wonder what Bathsheba's involvement was in all this. Because we just hear about David, and there's good reason for that. David's known as an adulterer. He's known as a murderer, to those who know the scripture. But he's not known as a rapist. So what was her mindset? Was she pressured? Did she feel pressured because he was the king? Or did she bathe on the roof knowing that people could see without any covering, without a sheet up? Or, you know, you've got to think about this stuff. These are flat roofs, and uh, in that area you can have a flat roof because there's no snow. And the roof would also collect rainwater, and you would do things up on your roof. But if you were bathing on the roof, you've got to assume that if you're out in the open that somebody could see you. Was having the king's baby a good retirement plan? After all, her, her husband was a warrior. And what if he died in battle? She might be out begging. This is all conjecture. We don't know. But we do know that David shared, that David had the lion's share of the blame. Why? Because as the king of Israel, Israel was a spiritual nation. So in a sense, he was a spiritual authority. Now this also counters in the New Testament in James 3.1. says, let us not all become teachers or these spiritual authority position." Because don't you know we will receive a stricter judgment or double damnation? That applied in the Old Testament as well. That's why most of it has to do with David. And we'll see that in the next chapter. 
I love that about God. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't say, well, here's my boy. He can do no wrong. There were consequences to this, and we'll, we'll definitely, I urge you to come back when we cover uh, the next chapter. Verse 5. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Here's the problem. She's pregnant. She's still married to Uriah. He's been away for some time now, so she can't say, honey, it's yours. Right? The Bible gives the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's, it doesn't code it. It doesn't cut any corners. This brings us to the fourth step, the progression and the consequences of sin. I have to tell you that when I watch a movie and it's intense and there's drama, something like this, I get anxiety <laughs> because I, I get so engrossed in the movie that I think, well, I almost like I'm in the movie. Now, I know that's weird. And there's some movies, there's some accounts that I can't read before I go to bed because I get amped up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you look at some of these predicaments and go, oh, I hope I never get into that predicament. This is frightening. And sin should frighten us. It should. Verse 6. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was prospering. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. So here's an attempt now to cover up the sin. We're going moving to cover up here. It's getting progressively worse. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He who attempts to cover his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy." That's powerful. So what does David do? He makes small talk with him. He gives him a gift of food. He tells him to clean his feet and go be with your wife. Hey, if anything's going to work, it's going to be clean feet and some food. <laughs> Another small problem. Uriah's loyalty was greater than David's at this point. Fifth step. Sin can go one of two ways. We can choose to repent, as the Proverbs tells us, or we can cover it up. David chose plan A. He chose to cover it up, and it didn't work. And I think the, this is the sad deception of sin, is that you know if it's in its in, in initial stages, it usually starts out small, but it becomes a snowball. It gets, becomes a monster. It becomes bigger and bigger as time goes on, and we attempt to hide it and cover it up. And what happens is when those are in a position of authority, you see it all the time, even with politicians, there's consequences. They deny it at first. I mean, I don't want to start naming congressmen and stuff, but even in this area, in the tri-state area, so much corruption. Oh, no, that didn't happen. You know, you sure? And then they get more inside information, and eventually it comes out. They don't want to lose that position. They don't want to face the consequences. There's a pride that gets built up, and facing uh, your sin is humiliating. It's certainly humiliating. I think we've all been there at some point or another. However, delaying of repentance only brings more pain to the sinner. It's like being in a hole in the ground and you've got a shovel instead of a ladder and you just keep digging. The problem is the more you dig, the further down you go into the hole. 
and, and eventually you dig your own grave. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Listen to this answer. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This guy is smoking. I mean, he wouldn't have done anything wrong, but he just was such a man of integrity. And that was the problem. At this point, Uriah was more of a man of integrity than David was. Uriah was fiercely loyal to his fellow soldiers, to his countrymen, to the king. And you can make the case, he's a Hittite. We don't know much about his faith, but he speaks about the ark. So you can make the case that he was loyal to God as well. Maybe he came from another land, and like many did in that area, they, they submitted to the monotheistic God, Yahweh, and they became believers. So I don't want to speculate too much, but the man has incredible integrity. Now, sometimes in Scripture we find maybe he wasn't a believer. I don't really know. But it's really sad when we look at the Scripture, Old Testament or, or New Testament, when someone who's an unbeliever has more and better character than someone who's a believer. I remember speaking about some of this in 1 Samuel 18 with loyalty, with uh, friendship, with camaraderie. And I'm just going to be honest with you. When I go to work, some of the guys I work with will admit that they're not believers. But if I'm in trouble and I call an emergency code, they're there within, within less than a minute to save my life, to give theirs for mine to go down with me if it's a shootout. And then I've dealt with people in the church over the years who would run right over me and other Christians just to get what they wanted. That's so backwards and twisted, right? Those of us who have the Holy Spirit should be different. We should set a better, better example. But David was showing a very poor example compared to the integrity and character of Uriah. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow. I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan B of the cover-up. Get him drunk. Hopefully he'll go to his house drunk. Something will happen. Or maybe if he's so drunk, he won't even know if something happened or not. However, it doesn't work. The man lays down with the servants, won't go to his house. Even drunk, Uriah is a man of integrity. It's impressive. It really is. Verse 14. Then in the morning it was so that David wrote a letter to Joab. Remember, he's the general and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Puts it in Uriah's hands his death warrant, sealed by the king. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it happened while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew 
there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Plan C, the worst part of the cover-up. Well, make sure Uriah is KIA, as you would hear in the military, killed in action. Make it look like it's just part of war. Sin spreads like a cancer. Bathsheba is going to be showing soon. And if Uriah found out that his wife was unfaithful, not knowing that it was the king, she could have been stoned to death. Then the problem, from the king's perspective, is, well, what if she talks? What if she says it's mine? Certainly some of the servants in my palace know. Now you've got this huge scandal on your hands. All these problems from one sin. But David knew he can count on Joab. We're going to run into Joab again in the scripture. Joab was often on the fringe of his walk. Don't really know if he was a solid, he wasn't a solid believer. Don't know if he was a believer or not. There was some, it was some family thing here. And uh, Joab actually was very good in military. So David kept him. But it does, to David's credit, he did discipline him at times. Um, but Joab will turn out to be a thorn in David's flesh later on. Similarly, when we look at this, those in unrepentant sin often surround themselves with questionable people. I've seen it time after time after time. Those in unrepentant sin will now find new friends. Maybe not the solid believers that they were friends with before, but others that are on the fringe. Like the expression goes, birds of a feather flock together. Right? Even in the church. May not be a sin like this, of course, but... When you're in unrepentant sin, you find others who are like-minded, who aren't going to judge you. I hear that all the time. What a cop-out. What about the, uh, the command to be holy? What about the command to repent for sin? Oh, don't judge me. That's just a way for someone to say, I don't want to hear about it. Don't talk to me about that. It's sad. This is such an issue that in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul said that you could hang out with unbelievers or you could be in the world or your job or your family and they could be in sin. But you know what? He says, if I'm going to get away from those in the world that are in sin, I'd have to go basically to another planet. He goes, but withdraw from the believer who's in sin because they're double-minded. Paul actually sets up a double standard in 1 Corinthians 5. You should check it out sometimes. Now today, unfortunately, with the advent of social media, it doesn't happen. You know, it's just, it's, it can become a big cancer, a big cesspool where everybody's mixing with everybody else. And there's no consequences for unrepentant sin in the church. I have to tell you this, being a police officer for 22 years and being a pastor for almost 10, I don't think anything shocks me anymore. I've seen the bizarre of the bizarre, really. Anybody can tell me anything and I, I won't even raise an eyebrow. You know, and, and it's kind of sad. It's really sad. Verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matter of the war to, of, of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth. Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? 
Then you will say to him, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David sent to the messengers, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Uriah is dead. Oh, the depths that a man after God's own heart can sink. Don't think it can't happen to us. Maybe not on this scale, but don't think it can't happen to us. David is telling Joab, you know, don't feel bad about Uriah's death. You know, the sword devours one as well as another in war. And Uriah was so loyal to David. Now, for those of you that are interested in the military aspect of it, basically when you're going after, and this has been played out so many times in wars, even up to World War II, if you're going up to a, a fortified city, you attack. You know, you have to keep besieging the city. You want to cut off their supplies. You want to starve them out, whatever you need to do. But they have the advantage because they have a wall. So it's, you're going to lose a lot more men initially than they will. Now, when you are going after the men, you can't get too close to the wall because anything could come down from the wall. You've got your archers. You've got those that throw boulders over it, boiling liquids, whatever the case may be, flaming arrows. So David does not expect his, his experienced uh, commander Joab to do something so foolish as to let these mighty, valiant, fierce, loyal warriors to go right up to the city gates because these are the things that could happen to him. However, he did it because his note said that he broke apart after Uriah gave it to him. Make sure Uriah is killed. So he says, if David gets upset, make sure you let him know that Uriah died too. Oh, okay little thing between us and that's what happened two points before we read the rest number one Hollywood glorifies sin especially adultery so does prime time it's romanticized you watch that stuff long enough you watch enough movies when you read the Bible you have a problem with God's word because we're, we're, we're desensitized to it because of what we see in Hollywood the truth is, sin only brings pain. It kind of reminds me of just loading a shotgun with double O buck and just spraying it. Those bullets can go anywhere. Who's going to get hurt? Nobody knows. But somebody is going to get hurt. Two, we've been desensitized to this as those in Western culture. We live in a very violent culture, I submit to you. We've thought about the Roman Colosseums, but we're getting there. You know, we're getting really close to that. This is bad. Think about this in real life. What if this was your brother, Uriah? What if he was your dad and this happened to him? How would you feel? You'd be petitioning the prosecutor and wanting that person punished or pay for their crimes. So let's not be desensitized because of the culture we live in. Think about Uriah being someone in your family and to make it even worse, he was a stand-up guy. Why did he die so young? Maybe he was in his 20s, I don't know. Verse 26, last two verses. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. 
and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or translation was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So does David and Bathsheba live happily ever after? Uh, where do we get to the next chapter? The answer is no. In the next chapter, we'll look at more of the consequences of sin because there always are, trust me. Again, what I love about, one of the things, many things I love about God is he doesn't play favoritism. And we'll see this mixture where God does allow consequences for sin, but he also shows mercy for those that repent of their sin. David does repent. And we'll see how God strikes this perfect balance where consequences are meted out, but there's also mercy for true repentance. Charles Spurgeon said it best, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. And we look out, maybe some in our own lives, and here's the problem. We see, it could be a year, two years, three years. It's a speck in God's economy, but we may know of a situation where a person's been in sin for maybe a decade or more, and it looks like they're getting away with it. And it could be frustrating, especially if we're trying to live the right life and others seem to get, go on and, and even get rewarded at times. But the truth is, it may look like that. We don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. We don't know who's going to be affected down the road. And with David, there was a near, in a sense, prophecy about his consequences. And there was also a far consequences. His dynasty, his personal life wasn't the same after this situation. Another relevant scripture, 1 Corinthians 10:12, says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we'll also look uh, next time at Psalm 51, which does appear to be the psalm, according to the, the writers, uh, when he was confronted by Nathan. Uh, and he starts to, he, he repents, and, and you see his heart in this psalm, and we'll cover that. So I would encourage everyone here that if you can, um, to certainly come out to the other 50% of the story. And also, for us to be warned, I look at this and there's a sober reminder in my own life. Um, so again, the evil that was, was taking place, we can look at and say, gee, we should be more on guard with when we have sins and our own desires when they get carried away. Let's pray.